You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, we're continually looking at Jesus' kingdom manifesto. The Gospel of Matthew is Matthew presenting Christ as king. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps a standard sermon that Jesus delivered from time to time in various forms with minor alterations. But in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have this description of life inside of Jesus' kingdom. He has told us the entrance of the kingdom. It requires, Matthew 5, verse 3, a poverty of spirit. A real humility with heart. And of course, that's what it takes to receive the message of the gospel. Because in confessing that you are a sinner in need of the grace of God, you have a brokenness of spirit, a real humility within your heart. And so the Lord has given us attributes and lifestyle within his kingdom. Now in chapter 6, at the beginning of the chapter, he basically described spiritual life, prayer and the giving of alms, in contrast to the modern norms of his day. The religious leaders were very public in the things that they would do, very public in the gifts that they gave. They would blow a trumpet. They would desire to be seen as they were crying out and praying to God. But the Lord taught something completely and entirely opposite from the religious leaders. He taught us to be a people who pray in private, who when we pray, it's not something that we have designed to gain a following or adoration, but our prayers are designed to be heard by our Father who is in heaven. And that when we give, you know, we're to give in such a way that we're not blowing the trumpet, we're not announcing our giving, we aren't doing it for the purpose of being seen by men. And really, this all points to the major question of where is your glory coming from? Is your glory from God or is your glory from man? But then the Lord also spoke concerning prayer here in Matthew chapter 6. And he gave the model prayer after rebuking the idea of repetitive, mindless, vain repetitions in prayer. He told us to pray and say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on. And so we were able to learn about the template of prayer that Christ has given to us. But in talking about those different spiritual disciplines, if I could say it that way, Jesus takes us to verse 16 where he begins to talk to us about fasting. And he says in verse 16, he says, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And some versions would say that your father who sees in secret will reward you openly, as opposed to he sees in secret and his reward is not in secret, but his reward is very public and very obvious. And so, first of all, Jesus starts out with 
you know, an assumption that his people will be a people who fast from time to time. Now, in another place, the religious leaders and those who were questioning came to Jesus to interrogate him about his disciples. You know, they were very concerned. The disciples of John, well, they fasted and the Pharisees fasted, but it did not seem that the disciples of Christ were ever fasting. And Jesus announced to them that the hour was an hour of feasting. The bridegroom was with them. Who would fast during the wedding reception, so to speak? You know, the bridegroom is with them, but he announced that a day was coming where the bridegroom would be taken from them, and that would be an hour and a time of fasting in their lives. And so we are currently, as a church, in this kingdom of Christ's, we live in an era in which fasting is acceptable. And so here he says of his people, he says, when you fast. Now, when you fast, he has one basic requirement. He says, make sure that you're not like the hypocrites who are making their fasting look so painstaking and laborious and difficult so that others will see the great sacrifice that they've made and fuss over them. And Jesus says, truly, truly, they have their reward. And, you know, basically anybody who does any good work or fast or any spiritual discipline with an attempt to be seen by others and, you know, announcing it for others or acting like they've made such a big sacrifice and making such a big deal about the difficulty that they've endured for the cause of Christ. You know, when you do that, you've already received your reward. The thing that you're trying to get out of it is the attention of man. And so if you're an attention hog and that's what you're desiring, well, then you can get it, but that will be your reward, Christ says. He says, no, to to you, to my people, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't make yourself look as if you're having a difficult time. You want to do it in such a way that it isn't observed by others. Don't walk around with a t-shirt that says, you know, don't bother me, I'm fasting. When someone says, what's wrong? Don't say, well, I'm having a fast right now and it's a very difficult time. You know, don't make these pronouncements as much as your flesh. Oh, your flesh. As much as your flesh might want the glory that comes from man, resist it so that you can have the power and the glory that comes from God. So, fasting. So, I think that brings up the bigger question for us of, well, what does it mean for us then as people to fast? I mean, in this era that Jesus was speaking into, they probably understood it to a greater degree than we do. In in our modern era, I think, when we think of fasting, usually our thoughts are towards, you know, more of a dietary kind of restriction. I'm drinking only vegetable juice for a season or only lemon juice for a season, or I'm going to cut out sugar for a season. And some of this is done for physical cleansing. And we think of it as a cleansing kind of activity. But in Christ's mind, fasting is much more than a cleansing kind of activity, although I'm sure there are these wonderful physical benefits of fasting. But in the mind of Christ, it was a spiritual discipline, a spiritual cleansing, if you will, that 
enable the person to tap into a spiritual power. You see, what you're doing when you fast is you're denying the flesh something that it longs to receive, something that it normally gets. So, you know, fasting from food, which is the most common type of fast, and there are other ways I believe a person can fast. I myself go quite often through fasts of various forms of media or all media in its entirety just to get away from news and sports and television and movies for a season of time. But the most common kind of fast is a food fast. And in the Bible, the most common kind of food fast, although Daniel did fast from a portion or a type of food and ate other foods, the most common fast in the Bible is a food fast where all food is abstained from. Christ did this. Moses did this. It's repeated often. A fast from food. And basically what you're doing is you have a human body that wants to eat food. And in a fast, you are resisting the appetite that is within you. And as you resist that appetite, notice what Jesus says. He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It seems as if what takes place through a fast is manifold, but a few different things are produced through fasting. One is spiritual strength. Because in resisting the natural tendencies, God is giving you spiritual power to overcome those natural tendencies. You know, are you struggling with pornography? Are you struggling with lust? Are you struggling with greed? Are there areas of sin in your life that even though you want to say no to them, you end up usually saying yes to them? Well, hey, go through a season of time. You know, maybe start out with a fast of three days. And maybe after doing a fast of three days, later on down the road, do a fast of six days. And stretch it out a little bit and experiment. But, but as you resist the bodily appetite to eat, and God meets you and empowers you, you are strengthening the spiritual man within you to say no to the fleshly appetites towards lust or greed or whatever else it might be. And so fasting produces spiritual strength. But it also produces a time where what you're doing, it's as if you're saying, God, there is one frequency that I need to be tuned into. It's not the physical, it's not the fleshly, but it's the spiritual. And I want to be tuned in to hear your voice. Now, through my personal life, I've discovered that usually in the fast, I don't hear the voice of God. Usually during the time that I'm fasting, uh, I personally don't get direction and I don't feel powerful. When I'm in this, the fast, I'm just trying to survive by the grace of God. I'm clinging to his ability and his might and his power. But in the weeks and months that follow, I tend to hear God's direction. I tend to receive his voice and I tend to find and discover the spiritual power that comes from God. And so Jesus gave fasting to his disciples in his kingdom. Now in verse 19, he moves on and he begins to talk about money. This is the subject that is most awkward, I think, for us to talk about in the body of Christ, but it is one of the most heavily covered topics in all of God's word. And he says in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Jesus, first of all, talks about our investments. What are we investing in? And here he talks about not laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but laying them up in heaven. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think we have to dismiss the idea that it's wrong in all cases to be someone who saves here on earth, is a saver, an investor. You know, as you read the Proverbs, you see that a godly man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And certainly as you read the Proverbs and elsewhere in Scripture, it is good to be a wise steward with the finances that God has committed into your hands. But there is certainly an over-the-top laying up for yourself treasures here on earth. And in one sense, Jesus is saying, They're untrustworthy. Thieves break in and steal. Moths come in and destroy them. They rust. And so instead, be a person who has a heavenly priority where you are more concerned with the heavenly treasures and storing up in heaven. And Jesus knows that earthly treasure cannot last and it cannot satisfy Certainly Solomon is a great example of that. He had all of the wealth and all of the treasure that the world could bring. And he was disappointed with his earthly accumulations. And God in Isaiah 55 verse 2 spoke about spending wages on things that do not satisfy. And so our priority is to store up for ourselves heavenly riches. We are to Colossians 3 verse 2 set our minds on things above where Christ is, not on things on the earth. And so the rebuke really isn't concerning storing up and treasuring. It's just concerning where. Where will you store up? Where will you place your treasure? And here Jesus tells us to lay it up in eternity, to lay it up in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, there's no bank that you can go to and take your earthly money, deposit it, and say, would you invest this into eternity? You cannot do that, obviously. But when Jesus is saying this, he's talking about taking earthly treasure and investing it in the kingdom of God. I think one great example of this is the church in Philippi. The Philippian church was a wonderful church, and after Paul founded that church, they became a missionary-sending fellowship. They gave to the work of the ministry and they were such a great blessing to Paul the Apostle. And they funded so many of his missionary endeavors. So much so that Paul said to them in Philippians 4, which the book of Philippians is basically a glorified thank you note for the support that they had been sending him. But in Philippians 4, he said, and because you've done this, I know that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. So one way to store up treasure in heaven is by investing in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Pouring into missionaries, pouring into your local church, being a faithful giver. 
Uh, the Word of God tells us that pastors, elders, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine, should not be muzzled. Don't muzzle the oxen, that they should be allowed to partake, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so it's a honorable thing with our earthly finances to support financially the pastors and the leaders and the work of the ministry that we are a part of. And so with your earthly treasure, you can store up heavenly treasures. You know, another great way to store up heavenly treasures is not necessarily through supporting missionaries or ministry, but by being a generous person. James said, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their time of trouble. And obviously to care for them requires a practical ministry to their physical needs. And so in doing these things, you are storing up for yourselves heavenly treasures. Now notice in verse 21, this beautiful statement of Christ. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> in other words, in the context of giving and investing, he says, if you're placing your treasure in heaven, then your heart is going to be there. If you're placing your treasure here on earth, then your heart is going to be there. Now, this is so fascinating because it really flies in the face of what we would probably conclude naturally. We might say, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. But Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. Wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart is going to be. That's what you'll be thinking about. That's what you'll be dedicated to. It's like when I was a boy and in seventh grade, we had to pretend to purchase an individual stock on the stock exchange and track that stock. And every single day, I was so interested in Hershey's chocolate. That was the stock that I had pseudo purchased. And I was so interested in it every single day. I couldn't have cared less about it before that moment. But after investing in it, even though it was pretend money, in just investing in it in a pretend kind of way, I was now concerned about it. I'm concerned about the company and wondering how they were doing. And when you invest in the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, when you invest in the church, you become concerned with its well-being. Then he goes on in verse 22 and he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, a good eye or a healthy eye is a, an eye that is full of light. And an unhealthy eye, Jesus is saying, is full of darkness. And I think in one sense, what Jesus is alluding to is the absolute difficulty in identifying the sin of greed in your own life. It's just so difficult and borderline impossible. Adultery is clear. We know what that looks like. Lust is clear. We know what that looks like. Hatred is clear. We know what that looks like. But greed is so difficult because there's always someone out there that is richer than you, more well-off than you, that you can point to and say, now that is lavish, greedy living. 
What I'm doing is the norm. What they are doing is the lavish, sinful kind of attitude. And it's an eye-darkening kind of sin. And so this is where Christian fellowship really comes into place. To have honest people in your life that are able to speak to you and say, you know, I think maybe you've gone too far. And to encourage you to be a person with an open hand. No one, verse 24, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or some Bibles will translate this mammon. All right, This is a Greek word, mammon, which is that of money or possessions. You cannot serve God and money. And, you know, it's a good illustration. You could never picture a butler with two masters. And so it's better to serve the good master, that being God. He is easy to serve and wonderful to serve. You can't serve God and money. You've got to choose where your priority is going to lie. And the second that you start living life in pursuit of the almighty dollar, chasing money is the second that you have abandoned your service of God. You cannot serve two masters. Be devoted to the one. Be devoted to God. And I would just encourage you. This is such a difficult area of life. And it's so easy for us to become really infatuated with money, with earning. And we spend so much of our lives trying to earn a wage and make ends meet. And I would encourage you to make sure that in the midst of carrying out your practical duties to provide for your family, let that provision be an act of worship unto God. When you go to work, let it be for God because you want to honor your family and you want to do well and you want to be responsible and you want to support the body of Christ. And in your free time, your off time, be someone who prays, be someone who serves the Lord and gives your life to the kingdom of God. Now, therefore, verse 25, I tell you, in this context of talking about money, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I love this statement from Jesus. I mean, He just makes it sound so simple, but he really is cutting to the core of what we're about. He deals with anxiety, with worry. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to put on your body. Don't worry about your body so much. The the life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. It just gives such a wonderful perspective. You know, life is about so much more than money and possessions and what we wear. I live in this very materialistic culture and world where it's so easy to fall into the trap of being over-concerned with how you look and how you dress and what your status is and how much money you have. But Jesus says, listen, my people live contrary to that. They aren't worried about that. Life is about so much more than food and clothing. And he gives a great example in verse 26. Actually, he'll give us three examples. The the birds, he'll talk about measurements, cubits, and flowers. So let's take a look at these examples from Jesus. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so he points to the birds. And he says, listen, I've created the birds, and the heavenly Father feeds the birds. Don't you think if he's the creator and he feeds the birds, as your father, he will feed you? Are you not of more value than they? Now, he's not trying to offend the senses of those who love the animal kingdom. So does he. He feeds the birds of the air. But he had established mankind at the top of his created order. And he says, are you not of more value than they? And so we have a better standing with God than the birds do. And God provides for them. And so he is able to provide for us. Our father feeds them. And he says, are you not of more value than them? And verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Some would say a single cubit. Here it says a single hour in the English Standard Version to the span of his life. In other words, whichever translation you choose, which of you through worrying about it can add height to your stature or length to your days? Worrying, it really doesn't produce anything. And then he says in verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so again, he's getting at the heart of man and talking about worry and anxiousness. And he says, listen, don't worry about what you're going to wear. God clothes the flowers of the field and he will clothe you. They are more beautiful than Solomon in all of his glory. And so you will be just fine. God will clothe you, O you of little faith. Therefore, verse 31, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So in his kingdom, there's a confidence. Not worry, but faith. Not anxiousness, but confidence. Confidence in our Father, knowing that he knows that we need these things. So our response is found in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our focus is God first. Our priority is God first. You know, just as in the days of Haggai, when he prophesied over the people and said, listen, some of you are saying that today is not the day for God's house to be rebuilt. But there you are, dwelling in your paneled houses. In other words, God was rebuking them for their wrong priority. Here in God's kingdom, there's a right priority. What do we seek first? Our kingdom? No, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we do, he takes care of us. It's one of the beautiful conditional promises of God's word. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lay down your burdens and your worries and your concerns, for he is faithful. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. 
for additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.